Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland, and I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. So, Dominique, we just finished just an incredible, incredible webinar with Dr. Susan Friedman. It was what a treasure trove she gave us in, it was what, two and a half hour talk. It was just amazing. At the end, we were talking about a particular case history with a horse. We don't really need to go into any of the particulars because it's actually a fairly common situation that people have. This was a horse um, that had been trained very traditionally and it was coming to this to her current owner as a very, very, very shut down horse. And she had made a lot of progress, but she was hitting some stumbling blocks. And at the very end of the webinar, Susan addressed her situation directly. And I thought what she said was just so clear and so relevant to the situation that many, many people have uh, with their horses, that I wanted to read that quote. And then I thought it would be a great launching point for a conversation between the two of us. And it's in particular because it relates very much to the podcast that we did a couple of weeks ago on the hierarchy of of positive interventions that, that Susan presents. So here's here's the quote. When an animal is not doing, and, and hopefully I can read my own writing, but we'll see. When an animal is not doing as we expect. As we expect. It is something we're doing or not doing. So often we are goal-driven. We think about the behaviors we want to train, and the basic behaviors can often be too much for a learner as evidenced by their behavior at not succeeding learning them. So if this was a kid where my deeper expertise is than a horse, and I heard a similar explanation or description, I would say that kid is not ready to learn even the sim- what we call the simple behaviors, stationing, targeting. How do I know? Because he's not learning. The data tells me where to go. Being influenced by the horse's behavior tells me where to go. So rather than escalating to more intensive negative reinforcement, I would rethink what the beginning behavior should be for this horse. What is the horse not doing that we really need the horse to do at the most basic level to succeed among humans? And it would be to come up, take food from our hands, What are the most basic, basic citizenship behaviors? And that's where I would start teaching. So that even something like targeting is too much for this horse because this horse is having trouble delivering on that targeting. So rather than getting more intrusive on the hierarchy, I would abandon those first grade behaviors and I would go back to the pre-preschool. I often tell people, if you would imagine that this was a horse raised by wolves, right, had never seen a human, 
never seen an arena, fences, ropes, where would you begin with this very wild animal? It would not be with targeting and stationing and mat work and um, moving through, you know, tight stalls or trailers. It would be simply, when you're near me, reinforcement flows. I would be building that trust account of reinforcement deposits. And I would know I was ready to go to the next level when I show up and that horse runs towards me. That's the criterion I would, I would keep delivering non-contingent reinforcers until when I show up, that horse moves towards me voluntarily. Then I'd say, now we've got a big enough bank account to start putting contingencies in to teach this horse how to use its behavior healthfully. And that would be kind of my diagnosis, I say kind of softly, is that this is not an animal who's been reinforced for functional behavior, the kinds of behaviors we see in healthy behaving animals. This horse has been taught to do other things. It has no relationship with humans. It has no prediction but bad news about humans. So that's where I would begin. I think what is normally the beginning steps for this horse is graduate school. I'd find the easiest, easiest thing for this animal to do, whether it's going to the food I toss until it goes to the food I toss away from me without hesitation, and then slowly start to move that to coming towards me. So I hope that's helpful too. I, I just think it's important for us to say the data that the horse is giving us in the form of its own behavior is telling us you're not at the right, you're not working at the right level for the horse to succeed. I loved that quote. And there's so much in it, and I am in complete agreement with it. There's so often when people bring horses to clinics or they write me emails about a situation that they're having with a horse, or they're getting a new horse. Let's just take that situation. They're, they're getting a, a new horse and it's a brand new relationship. So it doesn't really matter what kind of training this horse has had. What I always want to suggest to people is that they pretend that the horse is a foal and that it knows nothing. And what would you do with a baby animal that knows nothing about the world or that knows nothing about people? You'd start at the very beginning and you wouldn't make assumptions that this horse, that, that, that dreadful word, that horse should know this. And I say dreadful word because our expectations can so get in the way of training success. You have a horse that is new to you and you slide down the horse's leg expecting the horse to pick up its foot because that's what horses have learned. And it's a 12-year-old horse and it should know this. But maybe where it lived before, the it was out in a pasture and its feet really didn't get dirty and the owner didn't check its feet very often. So the only time it was asked to pick up its feet was for the farrier and in that context, it can do it. But in this other context, it doesn't have a clue what you want. But if I pretend it's a foal and I go through the teaching process, 
then I know what my horse knows and I know how he was taught and the holes will be revealed. Yeah, that's, you know, I find that's one of the great strengths of Susan is helping us ask questions the right way. You know, there during the webinar, she said something else. She said, um, and we were talking about, I think, the same case where, you know, she was giving the example of, let's say a horse, you're calling a horse and they're just not coming. They would rather stay on a patch of grass. So there are two ways of asking the question. One way would be, why is that damn horse not coming to me when I'm calling him? That's right. And the other way to ask the question is, what is it about this horse's history of learning that may, where this horse has learned that it's a better allocation of his behavior, that there will be better outcomes if he stays on the grass rather than come to you. Or never mind, never mind staying on the grass, but when you go out to get him, does he walk towards you or away from you? That's right. And he has learned this from the previous outcomes. And so it's not that it's a bad horse. It's just that he has learned that the outcomes are better away from the handler rather than close to the handler. Yes. So that's, you know, that's, I think what, that's what this, the, the, the science does is that it, it prepares us to ask questions differently. When you start asking those questions differently, you, it opens up a lot of solution. Well, I love her phrase and I, and I just, I think it just needs saying over and over again. The data tells me where to go. My horse's behavior tells me where to go. Yeah. I always, I'd say to people, your horse will tell you what he needs to work on next. We'll often get people who say, well, I don't know what to work on. I don't know what to do with clicker training. And, and I think, well, it, it's that mm. for every behavior you teach, there is an opposite behavior you must teach to keep things in balance. Or what, is, what are the holes that your training is revealing. Um, and if everything is fine, then what are your training goals? And what is keeping you from just hopping on and riding off into the sunset? Or what are the skills that you would like to teach? But always it is your horse's behavior. It's the data. But it's also like you said, I think sometimes our expectations are not helping us see things very clearly. Right, right. We're very goal-oriented, and we, we want to get to that goal, to that advanced stuff. And sometimes, in the, in the case that you're, that in that quote, the advanced stuff may be to just take food from my hand. That may be really advanced work. Certainly if you're dealing, and I know a lot of people listening are, if you're dealing with Mustangs, the wild-caught Mustangs, if you're dealing with horses that are coming from an abusive background, you're not starting where, where the books describe, where you've got the horse in a small paddock or a stall, and it's well socialized already to people, and you hold a target out, and the horse comes up because he's curious and he touches the target. If you're dealing with a Mustang or an abused horse, 
you may find that that horse is trying to get as far away from you as possible. And the starting point is a long way away from holding a target out. But even if even if a horse has not been abused, even if it's your own horse, I mean, there may be something today in the environment that is very overwhelming to this horse. Yes. And that will, um, and if you want to be successful, you'll have to make it easier for him because in this particular environment today, he cannot do whatever he normally is able to do. So it applies to all of us at some point. Do you remember in one of the clinics that, that we did um, together, we had, a, we had a group of people and they were sitting, cluster in the middle of the arena, and we brought one of the horses in who was new to the barn. And, and he hadn't lear- yet learned how to, go, how to stand on mats. So we had a runway set up. And it was way too much for this horse that having the people where they were, having the runway set up the way it was, it was just, it was, it was overwhelming. Yeah, I remember. And rather than say to this horse, this is not that hard. You have to do it. We're going to make you do it. We're going to have you stay out until you get over whatever anxiety you have and, and, and just, you know, learn to deal with it. This is life. We said, let's take the horse out. And we changed the configuration of the arena. We changed where the runway was. We changed where the people were sitting. We made it all much less claustrophobic. And the horse came back in and was successful. Yeah, and I remember the comments from the participants very well, because they were you know, some of them had gone to other clinics before, of course, and they were used to having the clinician make the horse go through it. Or they were simply, they were used to, this is what's set up, this is what you're stuck with. Yeah, and they were really impressed with the fact that you changed the environment. And of course, the result was that at the end of it, the horse did it beautifully. Yes. The horse learned what you wanted him to learn, except instead of being difficult and a big struggle, it went smoothly and it was fun. It went smoothly. Yeah. That's right. Oh yeah, I remember that very well. Yeah, and um, it's funny, you know, because this this thing about making it always easier, I, I've been going through a process with Canel. Canel is a, she's a mix of Sheltie and Border Collie. She's, she can be quite intense. And she's usually, during the day, she will lie on the balcony. And every once in a while, there's, um, I don't know how you call them in English, you know, like the little country squirrels? They're not squirrels, Swiss, we call them. Chipmunks? I don't know, but in in French, we call them a Swiss. But it's like, let's say, a small squirrel. And that's very, very exciting. And they, they can be quite close. And sometimes they, I have like a wood pile and they go in the wood pile, which is against the wall. And so when she, when they go there, she goes nuts. <laughs> she will bark at the wood pile. She will um, try to take some of the, um, the logs, you know, she'll bite at the logs so that it moves a little bit and the squirrel is squeaking. Like her nose is less than a feet from that little animal. 
So it's been, and so she will bark like intensely, frenetically. So what I've done so far is that I will take the leash. I will try, I, I'm always very, I try to be very neutral. I don't talk. I just go, I put the leash on her. I take her in. I will give her something inside, you know, something good food, something reinforcing. But it's still that I'm taking this enrichment from her away. Yes. And so usually what happens is that when she sees me coming, she'll kind of avoid me because she knows that that's the end of the fun barking at the little squirrel and we're going in the house. So I started playing with that because I thought in a way that's a great controllable situation where I can test how much training I can do when she's really, really, really aroused. And so the first two times when I, when I will go there, I will offer her food. She's so aroused, she won't even look at the food. But we've been practicing this a little bit and now she will target away from the squirrel she will take the food, of course, but it always starts with really easy, which is just you, she's barking and taking the food from my hand. And then two, two steps later, like she will bark, take the food, bark, take the food. Then I can ask her to target my hand. We're still right next right, to the logs. Right. Target my hand, take the food. Oh, it's like, man, she can target even in that state of arousal. And then I start walking one step away from the, the logs and she will do that. I can take her all the way, at this point now, I can take her all the way to the door and she's training while the little squirrel is squeaking in the logs. And so it's a work in progress, right. but I've been amazed at this because for me it was, you can't train a dog that is so aroused, just stop the behavior because I don't want her rehearsing barking right. but now I want to test can I really call her back when there's this very exciting thing I don't know I'll see but I've been successful because I reverted back to the very simplest thing which is can you even take food from my hand when you're in that state this raises so many goosebumpy sorts of roads to go down because there's more and more there's this people are talking about emotions and emotional states and of course i'm always i always there's part of me that always wants to say when were we when were we not talking about emotions and emotional states but th that that's another that's another whole podcast. yeah <laughs> podcast yes yes but this there's the comments that are made about the emotion that that the emotional state that the animal is in when you are reinforcing it also gets reinforced. And so that seems to imply that if you want a calm animal, you can't train when they're not calm because all you'll be getting is what you're reinforcing is, is excitement. But that's not been my experience. And that's not what you're describing either. No, she's actually calming down. She's calming down. I, I, she, can, she can concentrate on me while this other thing that is normally a big trigger. Yeah. And yet she, she's training. And you said... And she's, she's not biting my, my fingers right. off. And you said 
she's barking and I'm giving her food. And so yeah. the... And it only lasts for two, because that actually makes the barking go down. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Really, she stops barking. Yeah. She's training, and she's not barking. So it's not as simple as it. As it's never simple. No, <laughs> it's not as simple There's as. So always, so many layers. Yes. Always, always. Yeah. Yes. This is why it's so fascinating in those webinars to ask those questions to people like Susan. Yes. Cases. They help us, and and you know there was something else she said during the webinar on uh, this weekend. She said, you know, there is always more than yes. one way to account for a behavior yes. or a situation, always. And and I, I thought that was quite interesting because, and it's true, and of course you want all these different accounts to be coherent. And I love it when it happens, you know, when you find another way to explain something that you there was a previous explanation that made perfect sense and there's a new explanation that look at it from a different angle and it's kind of in line with the other one but it's just adding enriching the different ways you can interpret yes. the situation and it and it may give you some other ideas for how to work through a particular situation i have to interrupt for just a second since you were talking about squirrels because i'm sitting in the garden room as we record this and there's a squirrel in the backyard who is busily barrowing walnuts for the winter. So, you know, it's just, it's hard not to be distracted by, by the zoological park that's outside the window. Anyway, yes, the, that these different accounts, and sometimes they, they give you a way of going, oh, actually the other way of thinking about it was leading me into dead ends or was, based on some assumptions that may not be workable, or sometimes it may be, it's a perfectly good account, both are perfectly good accounts, but this this other way of looking at it opens up some possibilities that I didn't see before. Not just that, I mean, I'm going down the hierarchy. And when, when, I'm, when I say other accounts, I mean, we could think about like some of the other accounts, not to interrupt, but some of the other accounts, like the dominance account, Oh, my, my horse is crowding into me because he's being dominant. And that was something else that, that Susan was talking about, the reification. But we won't go into that right now because that's another whole podcast. But um, yeah, so you, know, so you may find that some accounts really don't fit your, the lens through which you are viewing your training. But even in, in the lens that we're using, which is, you know, the, the positive reinforcement training lens, there are many ways, many, many ways to account for something using the science. Yes. Yes. You know, we, we were talking about a situation where is this, are we seeing the pre-MAC principle at, um, at work or could we see it this other way? Are we seeing some negative uh, reinforcement at, at work or you know it's so or all of the above or all of the above it's just a yeah. different way of explaining things and yeah it opens up solutions because up till now when this happened because i didn't want her to rehearse barking i would just use um i was taking away the reinforce the her reinforcement yes whereas now instead 
I'm doing something completely different. And yes, in the beginning, I, I wouldn't have done it this way because I would have thought, well, how can I tr click her when she's barking like a crazy dog? <laughs> yes. I, I, this is not a good plan. And yet it's working. I just think that's so neat because again, it opens up so many different avenues of discussion, but it's, it's that whole, um, I think it's, it's being brave enough to be creative and really looking at these strategies that we keep putting out there and saying, I'm, I'm going to use them. I'm going to try them. And, and the strategy that's the simplest is, is really when behaviors deteriorating, go back to a simpler previous step in the training. Exactly. And what could be simpler than just let me click and feed, let me click and feed. Yeah. Um, it's, and, and the other thing in that quote that, uh, that I read at the very beginning, when you go back to the beginning, what you create is not just a history of reinforcement, therefore a relationship with your horse, but you're creating a repertoire of behaviors mm -hmm. that have been positively reinforced and that become the means to communicate back and forth. Yeah, because if you don't have a repertoire, how can you, you talk? Have nothing. Yeah. If what, you don't... So you don't want me to do whatever, but you haven't taught me anything else I can do. Right. Teach me a hundred other things I can do, and then we can talk, and then you can redirect me towards something else. But if I know of nothing, you know, repertoire of skills and behaviors is underrated. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It is so important. It's, it's our tools. It's the tools we're going to work to find solutions. And you can never have too many. You can never have a big enough repertoire. So if someone says, I don't know what to train, it doesn't matter. Train, train anything. anything. It'll be useful. So you're, you're, you're going to hate me for this, but, well, no, you won't. But I think we should stop right there. Because what a brilliant statement. And let's pick up again in our next podcast on just that statement because it's such a door opener. Such a door opener. So remember what you just said. And right now, let's say goodbye to everyone for this week. And we'll pick up again uh, in our next podcast. All right. See you next week. Bye. As you can see, our webinar with Dr. Susan Friedman provided Alex and I a lot to think about and talk about. It was a really great webinar. If you were not able to participate but would like to review the recording, you can purchase it on the Equiosity website. Simply head over to equiosity.com and look for the store at the top of the homepage. Once you have purchased the recording, you will receive the link to download the video of the webinar, or if you prefer to listen to it while you're driving or whatever way you listen to this podcast, you will also get the link to an audio file. Next week, we'll be back to continue our conversation about the importance of building a good repertoire of behaviors and other exciting information and insights we got from this amazing webinar.
See you next week.